the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Hope you're having a great Friday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, whatever they might be. Maybe it's just something a little more personal, something going on in your life. Uh, We'll point you to the Bible, do the best that we can. Uh, We love your live calls. I'd love to end the week with lots of phone calls. So 340-9585 is your number. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local calling area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, I remind you every program, the safest way to call is by using the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Because it's Friday, we get to have church tonight. We have Bible study. We're going to be in Acts chapter 14 tonight, the first, I think, 19 verses. Um, Sunday, we're just about finished with Romans. We've got uh, one more study after this, and we will finish nearly two years in the book of Romans. Uh, And then, of course, we all have uh, Palm Sunday and Good Friday and then Easter Sunday to look forward to in the next couple of weeks. Well, quick reminder, we're going to be having our Easter services at the Judson High School Performing Arts Center. That's uh, on Sunday, April the 1st. Um, The Judson High School is in Converse, not too far from where our church is located. We have plenty of room. Invite people. People always get saved. And this year, Communion Sunday happens to fall on Easter Sunday. So we're going to try to do Communion as well on Easter Sunday. Pretty good day, I think. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is my first question today. And it comes from Richard from our email inbox. He says, in Luke chapter 16, verses 22 and 23, there's a vast difference as to where each person went after death. If I remember my teachings right, Abraham's bosom is also referred to as paradise, and I'm assuming the rich man, when he said he's in anguish in these flames, is in Hades. I've heard and read some commentaries that there is no one in hell right now. There are, however, souls in paradise. Can you clear up the difference between heaven, paradise, Hades, hell, and Sheol? I look forward to hearing your reply. Thank you, Pastor Ron, and peace be with you. Richard, thank you. Uh, God's peace is with us. Uh, A couple of things about Luke chapter 16. A lot of people treat this, Richard, as a parable. It's not. Uh, Names are never mentioned in parable. If you're going to be consistent in your hermeneutic, you understand that Jesus is telling a real story. And the real story, the purpose, is that we would understand exactly the difference that you asked about uh, in this chapter. So a couple of things. Uh, The names don't really matter. Paradise, Abraham's bosom, it refers to the same place. It's just referred to uh, by theologians throughout the generations in different ways. Um, The same is true with Hades, Hell, and Sheol. Now, there is no 
hell in the sense that we find it in the book of Revelation at this point, Richard. It is the lake of fire that will be created um, um, just before the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Uh, the man that we call the Antichrist and the false prophet will be in there all alone for a thousand years. And then after the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium, they will be joined by everyone who has ever rejected Jesus Christ. So um, um, it doesn't exist yet, um, but it is uh, hell or Hades or Sheol are all simply pictures. Jesus would call it Gehenna um, as an illustration. He would look at the city uh, uh, limits and they could see the trash burning. That was called Gehenna. And Jesus would use that as an illustration to liken what um, eternity without God is going to be like. So don't get caught up over the terms. Um, In Luke chapter 16, we're told that somewhere in the abuso, that's the Greek word, uh, in the center of the earth, there is uh, a, a place with two compartments with a great gulch between them. One we know as a place of torment. That's where the rich man went. The other we know as paradise or Abraham's bosom. Jesus called it paradise. So I'll call it paradise. Today he, he said to the, rich, or to the uh, thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise. Uh, that was a place that was in fact paradise, but it wasn't heaven. So there was a, a big gulch between them. You couldn't go from one side to the other, uh, even if you wanted to do so. Well, that was the cause of the rich man's angst. He, um, When he couldn't go over there, he wanted Lazarus, who he knew briefly, uh, to dip his finger in the water and cool his tongue. He said, for I'm in agony in this fire. Um, but he was told that can't happen. And then he said, well, then go tell my brothers. And he was told that even if your brothers would see a man raised from the dead, they wouldn't believe. In other words, it's too late. The decision where you're going to spend eternity has already been made. So today, Richard, in this place, um, in the center of the earth, there is still these two compartments. One of them is empty. And that's the place that's called paradise. We know that because Jesus went into the center of the earth to set the captives free. Now, we wouldn't normally think of paradise as being a place where they were held captive, but it wasn't their final destination. Their final destination was to be with Jesus, with God in heaven. And so Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, according to Ephesians chapter 4, and he um, proclaimed a victory message according to Peter's epistle. And the victory celebration, it wasn't a second chance for those who were in prison. It was those who uh, believed, those who were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were the ones who would be led in Jesus' train uh, into the very presence of God. Uh, the others would remain. Now, the, the, the victory celebration would be preached to everybody, but only those in paradise would benefit from it. So what we've got is this place in the center of the earth, one place still full of people who are in torment, and they will be in torment until the great white throne judgment and the lake of fire. They will be there until that place is completely emptied. Now, we don't have to worry about that place after that. Remember, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So everything that we see... Uh, everything we understand will be destroyed and replaced with something that's absolutely perfect. So paradise is empty. The place of torment is still full and will be full until the end of the millennial reign. So, Richard, I hope that answers your question. I think part of our problem is we get so caught up in the names. Um, uh, Hades, Hell, Sheol, Gehenna. Uh, but they're all just a picture of the lake of fire, which is going to be the eternal place for those who reject Jesus Christ. Good question, Richard. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Sandra from our email inbox. It's a little long, but I'm going to read it uh, because we need to, to hear Sandra's heart. She has something very important to say. Uh, she says, your teachings, referring to my teachings on Second Samuel, are right on target for what I've been experiencing for about six months or more. God answered my prayer to help me understand why I was having ups and downs in spite of doing what I should. 
Mainly his purpose was to give me understanding and have an answer for someone else experiencing the same problem. Your sessions on this has opened my eyes to many great things, and I thank God for you. I just want to make one comment. Now, let me stop there for a moment before I read the comment. I only read that not so that somebody's speaking nicely about me. Um, but God's purpose is always to give us understanding and to minister the comfort we have received from God to others. So, Sandra, um, it's excellent discernment. God is really, really, really uh, ministering to your heart. I can't wait to see what he's going to do. Now, here's a comment. In your second session, that's in Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 17, you made a statement about how David's relationship with Jonathan was understandable, one reason because, or one reason being because of his problems with all his wives. Don't you think that David brought those problems upon himself? I've never been able to pinpoint where God ever instructed David or any of his followers to have multiple wives. I hear other pastors and teachers directing blame toward women in the Bible as it relates to our lives today. I wish they would take a longer and harder look at these teachings before sharing them. I understand the purpose and point because I've had the privilege to study the word, but I wish the words we use to teach others would be chosen more carefully. As it stands, and this is important, uh, that's, I'm, now this is Pastor Ron talking, as it stands, Sandra says it's difficult to help other women, especially new believers, understand how precious we are to Jesus when they hear things that seemingly point the finger at them, at the women. I'm sure you experience some reproach when teaching what the Bible says specifically about women. It is not to be critical or to judge anyone's teachings. I know that sometimes teachers of the word are under pressure to deliver the message within the constraints, constraints of a short time, and the words don't always come out as we intended. Thanks to the Holy Spirit, we as listeners are able to discern the true meaning. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you. I love and benefit greatly from your teaching. Sandra, thank you very, very much. A couple of things that are very important in terms of your comment. Uh, I think when preachers preach, sometimes something preaches good. Uh, Eve was the one who was deceived, not Adam. Adam walked into sin. And instead of blaming Adam, upon whom God placed the blame, by the way, uh, we have a tendency to say, well, the woman you gave me, and even that passage of Scripture from Genesis is taught, I think, badly and incorrectly. Um let me go back to the context of your question. I was talking about David's relationship with Jonathan. They were closer than brothers. Uh, they loved one another. And, and what I said in my message uh, that you referred to was that uh, David, because of his multiple wives, there was always a lot of tension in the home. It wouldn't have been a fun place, a peaceful place, or a comfortable place in the sense of the relationship with women. Uh, and so uh, David would find refuge with his best friend, Jonathan. And that's one of the reasons they were so close. Sandra, if I gave the impression in that study that I was blaming um, the women for David's sin, um, I, I apologize profusely because that wasn't the case. You're absolutely right. David brought all of those problems upon himself. There was never any place where God instructed them to take multiple wives. In fact, just the opposite is true. It's going to get even worse when we get into Solomon's reign. Um, um, it's what men did because, well, men are jerks. And, and men care what people think. And men like the trappings of power. We like being flattered. And in David's case, later in Solomon's case, and in other kings of Israel's life, um, when neighboring countries wanted to make peace with a king, they would bring their daughters and give them as wives. That was sort of like solidifying a peace treaty, and there could be no war. So it would be uh, very appealing to somebody uh, who's a threatened nation leader to make peace with David or to make peace with Solomon so as to ensure that there wouldn't be any uh, war made against them. But none of those things excuse what David did. None of those things excuse what David did. David made terrible, terrible mistakes. Uh, I have said over and over in our studies in Second Samuel that David paid a lifetime of consequences for those mistakes. And all of the ways that David was a man after God's own heart, there were almost an equal number of ways that David was just a man. And he didn't apply God's heart. Times when he would seek God, there were other times when he didn't seek the Lord. And this is one of those times. So please forgive me if I left that impression. That was never my intent. 
And I agree with you that we who are responsible to teach the Bible, Sandra, we have a responsibility to correctly paint the picture. Not only that, but it is our responsibility in teaching the Word to make sure that the women who are listening understand how precious they are to God. Now, I don't know how long you've been listening to our studies, um, but I'm constantly bathing our women in this church in the love of God, constantly making references to the Song of Solomon. Um, how beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. Uh, and, and frankly, there's nothing quite as rewarding as seeing a woman who's been told for most of her life that she'll never be smart enough or pretty enough or thin enough or good enough to be accepted by people, especially by men, starts at home with fathers in many cases, sadly. But nothing is more rewarding than seeing that woman who finally realizes her value to God and how he sees her and how precious she is to him. And that's the only desire that I have for the women in our church and for those who listen to the Bible studies online or uh, on the radio as you do. So again, thank you for listening. I thank you for your faithfulness. Maybe one day we can meet. Um, but uh, I really, really want to be sure not to be misunderstood. And at least this Pastor Sandra will be a little bit more careful to make that point when I am saying things like this. In context, once more, it was just that David's house was never a peaceful place. It was all David's fault. All of it was David's fault. And that would make his friendship with Jonathan that much more rewarding. It would also make Jonathan's loss that much more devastating. And frankly, we're in Second uh, Samuel, we're, we're in chapter 7 currently on Wednesday nights. Um, there really isn't going to be any place for David to retreat. There's not going to be anybody for David to go to. And he is going to bear the consequences of a whole lot of really, really bad fruit. So I hope that explains things a little bit better than I did, Sandra. Thank you for your thoughtfulness. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Remember, we love the live calls. You're more interesting than I am, and we close out the week. Here's a question from Lee. Uh, he or she, I don't know who it is, says, uh, in whose name should we be baptized? Uh, Lee, it doesn't really matter. Uh, people make arguments over the silliest things. Um, we should just take Jesus' advice. He said to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's who we should baptize in. That's what we do here at Calvary Chapel. We immerse people completely completely and we lift them up but they're baptized in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit now when Peter says baptized in the name of Jesus it doesn't mean Jesus only and that's where this argument comes in there is sort of a fringe group that borders on cultism Lee that that uh, they're, they're called Jesus only types or oneness Pentecostals Jesus is the Father Jesus is the Son Jesus is the Holy Spirit and they say, no, it's not a good baptism. It isn't a valid baptism unless you baptize in Jesus' name only. And that's simply not true. It was Jesus himself who said that we should be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These are the kind of things that make Christians sometimes look foolishly when we argue over silly things like that. Sometimes I think we believe that there's sort of jealousy and competition in heaven. Because we humans get jealous and we compete with one another. We want our views to be the ones that are right. We kind of put that on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as well. There is no competition. There is complete unity. And believe me, when people get baptized, all three persons of the Godhead are thrilled to death that we're being baptized. I don't think we should argue about that, nor should we argue necessarily that immersion is the only way. Um, I think there are some things that we have to take stands on. Infant baptism is one of those stands. But beyond that, let's just enjoy the baptisms. So I hope that answers your question, Lee. Thank you very, very much. 
Here's a question from Anthony. He says, Pastor Ron, if God is sovereign over everything that we do, it must be true that he actually wants people to sin. So how can we be blamed when we do sin? Well, Anthony, it is true that God is sovereign over everything, but sovereignty of God does not mean that God causes things or that the things that we do by choice, by by the choice of our own free will, are things that God wants us to do. I've actually heard people who have got this distorted, perverted view of God's sovereignty say things like, well, it was God's plan, it was God's will that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. No, it wasn't. They made that choice. Now, see, this is the thing that we have to understand. God gave us free will to choose, and he did that because he wants us to choose to love him as we are loved by him. It certainly wouldn't be loving if God forced us to do it. We could say, I love you, I love you, I love you. But if we had no choice, then it wouldn't be a genuine or sincere comment from our heart. So here's what God does. In his sovereignty, he gives us the free will to choose. And even when we choose the wrong things to do, God works all things together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And of course, working things together for our good doesn't mean that we get what we want or things turn out the way we want. What it means is that God's will is going to be accomplished. And again, then we have to use our free will, Anthony, to decide whether or not we're going to use our free will to honor God or to rebel against God. So it is impossible that God could want people to sin. And the reason that we are blamed when we do sin is because we're the ones at fault. I tell our church here all the time that if your relationship with God is kind of cooling off, it's not God's fault. It's your fault. God never moves. He's always chasing us, but we're the ones who run away from him. We're the ones who separate ourselves from him by willful sin. And then because of pride or maybe just because we don't want to quit sinning, we don't repent Sometimes we pretend to repent when we don't really mean to stop sinning. We just, well, I feel bad about it. I feel guilty about it. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning around in life and doing the opposite of what we were doing. In this case, running to Jesus instead of running away from him. To run to him, we've got to stop sinning. And there are just too many professing Christians who just aren't ready at this point to stop sinning. And they somehow blame God for it. It's not God's fault. It's ours. Anthony, here's the one thing I can tell you for sure. The reason God wants you to stop sinning, and I don't, you're, you're, you're asking this question, so I'm not assuming that this is a personal issue with you, Anthony. But the reason God wants all of us to stop sinning is because he wants to bless us. He wants to be around us. He wants to put his arms around us and hold us secure. You heard the ladies on the program yesterday talking about abiding in Christ. That's what he wants to do. In fact, that's what he lives to do. So it's really important that we understand that when we sin, it's our fault. And all then we have to do is say that we're sorry and mean it can't be, oh, I'm sorry, and then start sinning again. But genuinely and sincerely say, Jesus, forgive me. I don't want to do this anymore. That's what struggling with sin is. One of the ladies uh, on the show yesterday talked about struggling with sin, and I said it's a good thing. It's sort of a, a, a like a wound in a battle, something we take pride in. I'm struggling with this, whereas before we wouldn't struggle. Well, all God wants is for us to struggle with our sin so that we'll stop it so that he can come next to us again, put his arms around us and protect us and bless us. Anthony, God is really nice. And I think sometimes we look at God's sovereignty like, oh, if he didn't want us to sin, he should stop me. That's not God's job. We have to make the choice to stop sinning. I hope that makes sense, Anthony, because this is really an important issue. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from Jason. Why won't God reveal himself and remove all doubt whether he exists or not? I would believe in him, 
if I could be sure. Jason, I'm going to challenge you on that because I don't think you would believe him. I think if Jesus appeared to you today and said, I'm Jesus, I'm the one, I still don't think you'd believe him. I think maybe intellectually you'd say, well, yeah, he is, but, but you're probably still going to be sinning. I think you're still going to have doubts. Why? Because God has revealed himself. This is the most important thing you're going to hear, Jason, in your pre-Christ life. God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a real person. He lived. He died. We have biblical accounts. We have secular historical accounts of this man, Jesus. But also, he didn't stay dead. And Jesus predicted this would be the case. And when he rose from the dead, that was the greatest revelation of God ever. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, Jason, nobody gets to the Father except through him. So consider that. 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585. We'll be back on the other side of the break. See you in two minutes. the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the last 30 minutes of our week, 340-9585. We are live calls and questions. Jason, I want to say one more thing to you about God revealing himself to you. If your question is honest, if if your statement that you would believe in him, if you could be sure, is honest, then I challenge you to look at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. What a great time for this question. We're coming up on Easter. It is the thing that validates what we believe as Christians as being true over and above any and other religion in this world. You see, if we didn't have this objective truth then religion would be just sort of relegated to superstition. You know, if you believe in Buddhism or Islam or Confucianism or New Age stuff, or it doesn't matter. It, there's no objective validation for their truth. There's fables, there's traditions, there's stories. But you see, we who are Christians have an objective thing that we can hold on to that sets out what we believe as being true, meaning by definition that anything that contradicts it is not true. It's false. And if you'll look at the empty tomb, if you'll wonder how it's possible that a man who said they would kill him, who said he would rise from the dead on the third day, and then with overwhelming evidence did exactly as he predicted you'll come to the conclusion that God has revealed himself to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me suggest Jason reading Philippians chapter 2. Start in verse 5 and read who this Jesus really was as has been revealed to the world. I ask you to do that because he wants to reveal himself to you You know what's really sad, Jason? Is that in the time that Jesus lived, died, and raised from the dead, there were people who saw him, people who knew it, people who saw the results, the miracles, and we still didn't believe it. You know why they didn't believe it? Because they didn't want to stop sinning. It's that simple. Here is an anonymous question that was sent in. How can I be sure the Bible can be trusted as God's word? And who wrote it? Anonymous, this is, as a believer, uh, this is the most important question that any one of us can get the answer to. Again, once you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the question you ask is the single most important question. You've got to know and be able to depend on the Bible 
being God's Word. So how can it be trusted? Well, find out. Don't just listen to me. I'm going to tell you. But I had the same struggle as a brand new believer. I didn't understand. I didn't grow up in church, so I had no background. It might not have been a bad thing for me. And when people would say, in answer to my question, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, anonymous, all I could do was was struggle with, well, well, it doesn't make sense. How could a book written by men be written by God? And it was so important to me that I made it the singular goal of my life at the time. It took me a little over three months, and I was convinced. I was absolutely convinced. And since that day, there's never been any doubt in my mind. I've known where to go for answers to questions, whether it's the questions that I asked all those years growing in the Lord, or the questions that you people ask on this radio program. It's the reason that I can be so bold and so direct, because I am 100% certain that the Bible is the full and complete revelation of Jesus Christ, God's written word. And his written word is consistent with his living word, Jesus. And you have to know that. I could tell you about the manuscript evidence. I could tell you about the archaeological evidence. I could tell you about the prophetic evidence. Uh, I could tell you about the spiritual evidence, the change in people's lives. But you see, you've got to do that work for yourself. It has to be something that you're convinced of. And it will be the most worthwhile endeavor that you've ever embarked on. I can promise you that. And when you are, remember me and say thank you for challenging me to do this. Because nothing in your life is as important as this right now. Finding out that you can trust God's word. It really is his word. As to who wrote it, it was written by 40 different authors. Some say 41, but I believe the Apostle Paul also wrote the book, to he- uh, the letter to the Hebrews. So uh, 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. Uh, Old Testament, a picture of, of uh, sort of a uh, connect the dots picture of the fulfillment of the age that we have as New Testament believers. Every word written by God, every word inspired by God. Imagine 40 different men over 1,500 years and it's completely internally consistent. It is living and active. That's what we're told. And you can trust it, but you've got to find out for yourself. It's the most important thing that you can do. Let's go to San Antonio now and talk with Gina on line one. Gina, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, Hi, Gina. I was just calling to... Um, last Saturday, we lost our pet. Drastically, and uh, he got run over, and I just wanted to know if all dogs really do go to heaven first. Oh, Gina. Devastated, and... Our pet Superman's birthday is tomorrow, and every time I try to get stronger, my boys ask for him. I have a eight-year-old and a two-year-old, and the two-year-old just walks around the home asking for him. It's just we're just hurting so badly, and the Lord is I feel and comforting me, and I'm just. It's just, I guess it just hurts me whenever our boys keep asking for their pet. Yeah. Gina, let me comfort you. I, I hope I can comfort you. Uh, I don't want to give you false hope and tell you that dogs are in heaven because heaven is um, reserved for those who are made in the image of God, meaning that, that we have the ability to choose. Um, you chose your pet. Your pet didn't choose you. Uh, it worked out great for both of you. Um, but um, uh, and those who are going to live forever. Now, I think the way, and this is this would be a good way to, to to address your children as well. Now, I'm saying this just so you understand. I'm saying this as a committed dog person. Uh, when Paul and I moved here to San Antonio to start this church, 
Um, our dog was 13 years old. He was a big male Rhodesian Ridgeback boxer mix, 125 pounds. We loved him. Um, we treated him like our own child. I mean, we loved this dog so much. And he, he didn't live um, um, more than a year and a half, I think, here uh, in Texas. He died at 15, and, uh, and our heart was absolutely broken. And on the other side of this, uh, when he was gone, um, I realized how much God taught me through that dog. He taught me how to be a pastor. He taught me and Paula how to love unconditionally um, because when he was getting older and we needed to, to, to do everything for him, it was just one of those things that that um, when he was gone, the Lord said, okay, now what I've taught you with him, our dog's name was Moto. What I've taught you with Moto, I want you to love my people that way. So we didn't get another dog. That's not always the answer. But here's the way to explain it. That dog that you love so much was a gift from Jesus himself. That dog was created that you would have a friend, that you would have a partner, that you would have great pleasure. And and the way that dog loved you, you know what I love about dogs? It doesn't matter how bad your day was. It doesn't matter how many horrible things you've done. When you came home, that dog was panting and tail wagging and couldn't wait to see you and jump in your arms or on your lap. Well, that was God's gift to you. Your dog was God's gift to you, and you enjoyed him for a time. And I think the way to approach this now is to be grateful to God for the time that you had. Don't diminish the fact that you're hurting and grieving. This is a real loss. And it's okay to cry, and it's okay to have your your kids cry when they ask for him. Will they see him again? But here's what you can do. You can tell them when you get to heaven and you see Jesus, one of the first things that you can thank him for is that you, Jesus, gave me my dog and I loved him or her so very much. And Jesus will look at you and he will say, and you cared for him and you loved him so very much. And there won't be anything else to think about. So grieve. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to hurt. Uh, I can tell you firsthand um, that the pain gets better. Uh, it happens fairly quickly. At the same time, I can tell you that I still dream about my dog. And he's been gone now for 20 years. Uh, just night before last, I had a very, very active dream with my dog Moto in it. And he was just so full of life. And I wake up and I feel good and it's like, oh, and I told Paul, I said, you know, boy, I sure dreamed about Moto again last night. And um, that's just another little kiss from the Lord, I think. So, Gina, I'm sorry for your loss. I'll be praying for you and your family. Tell your kids that, that you. uh, Jesus loved them that much, okay? Okay, thank you. And also, um, I hear people talk about the Rainbow Bridge, but I've never read any biblical truth on that either. Can you tell me which bridge again? I didn't understand. Um, when people talk about your pets meeting you at the Rainbow Bridge. Oh, you know, that's just uh, silly superstition. Yeah, there's there's nothing have, There's I, nothing I, biblical I, about that. Yeah, I thought so. Okay. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for your Thank you, Gina. Comfort. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 340-9585. You know, one of the things I want to kind of encourage all of us who are believers to do is not try to give people false hope and think we're doing something good. Rainbow bridges, our dog is going to meet us there. That's so silly. Um, and it doesn't really provide any comfort because it isn't true. There is no comfort possible from that which isn't true. So I think we have to be grown-ups and mature in our approach to these things. And uh, I instructed Gina, just be so grateful that God did give you some time with that wonderful dog. I'm a dog person. Here's a question from Eddie. He wants to know, do you believe that God could have used evolution to create human life? Eddie, the answer is unequivocally no. Evolution cannot be true 
if your Bible is true. I want to say that again. Evolution cannot be true if your Bible is true. See, here's what we have to understand. If Adam and Eve weren't the first two humans ever created, then we don't have a Bible that we can trust in. We can't take the first 11 chapters of Genesis and and make it an allegory. It's either true or it's not. And, Eddie, if it's not true, then we're lost. If there was Neanderthal life, if we evolved from lower life forms, if, as Dr. Hawking always proclaimed, that we're the result of the Big Bang, then there's not a word in our Bible that's true. You see, Eddie, if you take the first 11 chapters of Genesis and you reject them as being literally true, we lose every major doctrine of our New Testament faith. Everyone, if Adam and Eve weren't real people, if the first humans were were some evolved thing, some hunched over Neanderthal. Well, then how can we be punished for sin? If God never made things perfect, if he didn't give Adam the instruction, don't eat the fruit of that tree, then how could we be blamed for our sin? How could we explain our sin nature? And I think these Temptations to compromise with the prevailing thought of the world. Those temptations are very, very strong, and it's easier to get along in this world. Problem is, it's not true. And we have to decide. I challenged the caller in the first half of the program, the one who wrote the question to me about Jesus revealing himself. I'll challenge everyone here and challenge you, Eddie, if you can't accept the first four words of Genesis, in the beginning God, then you don't know who he is. Now, let me say, just for clarity's sake, I know there are people who are real Christians who have fallen into this compromise with evolution or who have believed in the Big Bang Theory and who believe that the world is hundreds of millions or even billions of years old. I know that really smart people believe that and they convince others, I know the world that we live in makes us feel like we're fools if we say, no, I believe Genesis. But they're the ones who are really missing out because they don't really know God. How would God be loving if he created some primordial ooze and heated it up to the point where there was this huge explosion? How would God be loving if he started with monkeys and eventually we evolved from them? How would God be loving if he created an earth that was almost uninhabitable. Most importantly, Eddie, how would God be loving if he left us without his story? The New Testament confirms in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then we're told that there was nothing that was made that wasn't made by him, by Jesus. If that's not true, then we're all lost because there's nothing true. And the result then, Eddie, would be that we all just die and stop existing. And Paul says if what we believe isn't true, then we're the most pitiable of all people and that we're relegated to the eat, drink, and be merry crowd. I mean, if if heaven and hell aren't real, if Jesus isn't real, 
Well, then we all ought to be spending all of our time and all of our resources on just having fun. So, Eddie, no, it's not possible that evolution in any form is true. I can tell you one part of, of evolution is true. Just one part. We all change within a species. We don't change species, but we change within a species to accommodate the world that we live in. You know, when I grew up, people weren't as big as they are now. You should see the feet of some of these kids in my church and school. These little kids, they got huge feet. We didn't have feet like that, but the world is changing. But there's nothing changing about what God did. Where were you? He asked Job when he formed everything. It was about that time, Eddie, that Job had nothing else to say. 340-9585. We've got probably eight or nine minutes left to go in the program. Um, about a little over five minutes ago, I'm just told. Time goes fast when I talk a lot. Here's a question from Zachary. Um, what does the Bible say about prenuptial agreements? Zachary, that's the first time I've ever had this question on the program, and I am um, I don't get very many new questions, so uh, thanks for asking it. Um, they, they never heard of such a thing in the ancient world, so the Bible doesn't say anything about it. But what the Bible does talk about is the oneness that we have in Christ. Uh, I have been asked this question in pre-marriage counseling. Should we have a prenuptial agreement? And my answer is, if you're marrying somebody that you don't trust, then you have no business getting married, and I don't want to be a part of it. It's just as simple. We shouldn't keep separate checking accounts, separate savings accounts. We shouldn't... I mean, we're one flesh to become one. And if you are entering into a relationship with somebody that you're not sure is your partner, that isn't with you heart and soul... Well, then Zachary, you have no business marrying him. Now, I do understand the concept of prenuptial agreements for unbelievers. I really do. We get married for selfish reasons. We want to protect our stuff for selfish reasons. We want escaping from a bad marriage to be as easy and painless as possible. So that's what the world does. The world comes up with these things called prenups. But how in the world could that ever be the case for a believer? So, Zachary, no prenups, not for Christians anyway, um, to become one. By the way, you can't keep a secret from yourself, so you can't keep a secret from your husband or from your wife. It's just that straightforward. Hope that makes sense to you, Zachary. Thank you. Here's a question I'm going to get hammered over. Mary Ann wants to know, do you think visions of the Virgin Mary are real? Um, Mary Ann, the answer is... No, in the sense that they're not true. Um, I don't doubt that people have had visions. But if the Virgin Mary is a part of that vision, then it is demonic. Um, read Mary's Magnificat. Luke chapter 2, read that. And see if that's the heart of a woman who is a co-redemptrix. Or if that's a woman who's looking for attention. Or a woman who has anything other than to say, other than this is my son, listen to him. So it's very important that we understand that the proper role and, and, and respect the proper role of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Honored above all women, for sure. But Mary's not coming back telling people what to do. Mary is in heaven worshiping her Savior, not her Son. Mary's worshiping her Lord and her Savior. And I know that is a very unpopular position to take in San Antonio, Texas. But I can tell you it's the only biblical position to take. By the way, Mary wasn't a virgin after she had Jesus. She had, with Joseph, other children, boys and girls, we know their names. 
So rather than superstition or rather than tradition or rather than depending on some ecstatic religious experience, we need to look to Jesus. That's what Mary would tell us if she could talk to us now, but she doesn't. And since I'm here, I might as well say this as well. Praying to Mary is a sin, and it's something that shouldn't be done. So, Marianne, I hope that answers your question. I hope it doesn't get me in too much trouble with people. Um, we don't have time for any more phone calls. Let me see if i got a, another quick question. i got two minutes. Um, Anonymous says, if God is a God of love, let me stop there, Anonymous, he is a God of love. He proved it by dying for you and for me on the cross. Here's the rest of the question. How could he let people go to hell? Don't you think that people who did a lot of good, like Stephen Hawking, will make it to heaven? Anonymous, if Stephen Hawking can make it to heaven apart from believing in Jesus Christ, then everybody can make it to heaven. But no, Stephen Hawking isn't good enough. You know, we got to benefit from his intellect. But he also used the same intellect to deceive millions upon millions of people. He never bowed a knee to Jesus. So what good did he do when you consider it? Did he give us a greater appreciation of our universe? Sure he did. But all of that points to Jesus, and he didn't. So no, the only way to get to heaven is to be perfect, and we can only be perfect in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the calls, the questions today. You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Go to church this weekend and make somebody the object of your love. We'll see you on Monday. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.